Markets just continue to grind their way higher. In fact, today's Technically Speaking report talks about the next target for the S&P 5,000 on the S&P, S&P 5,000. Now, it's really not that big of a stretch here. We're already trading at 4,500 on the, the S&P. So again, uh, at this point, so we're just talking about another about you know 10% from here to reach 5,000. It's not that big of a move for the markets, uh, particularly at this pace that we're currently kind of making in advance. Already up 21% for the year. So again, um, lots of money, uh, lots of, uh, of influx from the Federal Reserve, keeping asset prices supported. Again, nothing to really seem to be worrying about here. In fact, if you take a look at investor allocations, they're now at all-time highs for investors. And this is simply just a function of where we've been in the market, the fear of missing out. And this is something that we're writing about and, and have talked about here recently, but talking about a market melt-up. And what is actually a market melt-up? A melt-up in the market is where there's a very sharp advance in the market driven by really the fear of missing out. And this is a kind of a definition from Investopedia talking about what a market melt-up is. And again, you kind of have all the ingredients for that in the markets already, right? I mean, you've got record issuances of IPOs, you've got SPACs, you've got people chasing meme stocks. Um, just really kind of everywhere you look within the markets, there's just a real rising exuberance of inv investors wanting to get in the markets. They want to participate. It's quick, easy money. So why not, right? I just put money in the market, it goes up every day. What else should I be doing? Right. So this is so that is the very definition of the market. And it's a, it's a very definition of a market melt up. And particularly when you have a very sharp advance, we had been in a, a kind of a long rising 45 degree slope of the market. We've now gone to about a 90 degree slope in the market uh, really since the March 2020 lows. So it's a very, very sharp incline of asset prices. And really, that's just a function of people piling in. And so if you continue to kind of extrapolate the current advance in the markets and just assume that the markets just keep doing what they're doing here uh, over the course of the next you know few months you're going to be at s p 5000 pretty quickly now again there's some some issues that are certainly in the works so to speak right we've got slowing economic growth and we've had some disappointing economic numbers here lately and of course the fed is now talking about well, potentially tapering their balance sheet. Well, and, and that's one of the interesting kind of sidelines of this whole, you know, this whole theory of S&P 5000 is that the market is running up because the Fed is putting liquidity in the markets, but how do the markets keep running up when the Fed is taking money out of the markets, right? So that's the one thing that really everybody is focused on. And so when you look at the employment report on Friday, that certainly was some good news for the no taper bulls, right? We want no taper from the Fed. Don't stop the money flows coming in. So the weak employment report on Friday certainly gave some ammunition to that crowd, right? So the Fed's looking at wanting to get to full employment and they're wanting to see price stability, right? Not too much inflation, but really inside that at that employment report, yes, the headline number was weak, but there were upward revisions to the previous uh, two months of employment data. And more importantly, wages rose very sharply, up over 4% on a year-over-year -year basis. Now, that's good for workers, right? They're getting more money to, to work and they're getting paid more to go back to work. That's good news. The bad news for the no-taper bulls, of course, is that's inflation. So again, now you've got inflationary pressures, not only in the economy, even outside of rising rental prices and rising house prices, food and gas. Now you've got rising income prices. 
And that is a inflationary pressure on companies, right? So companies have to deal with higher labor costs that gets pushed on to consumers through higher prices in products and services offered. So again, you can't really, you, you can say, look, this is great, right? employees are getting paid more. That's true, but that has to get passed on. And, and one of two things is gonna happen. Either companies pass that on to consumers or B, that actually holds up growth in corporate profits. So one, one way or the other, those higher wages are going to be reflected in something. And so if we start looking at market cap to GDP, right? So this is the value of the assets of the equity market relative to the economy. That's about 2.5 times what the economy can actually produce. If we take a look at corporate profits to GDP, and market cap to corporate profits. Those are all extremely deviated from each other to where none of those really represent the underlying fundamental strength of what can support asset prices at these levels. So again, the Fed is really kind of getting into a tough box. While the bulls are hoping here that you don't get any taper, and that of course is the support for S&P 5000, the underlying issue of that is that the numbers weren't really as weak as they appeared. Again, you see stronger wage growth, you're seeing revisions to prior employment numbers and likely seeing a prior revision to the September numbers when we get into October and November. And more importantly, the average employment rate over the course of the last three months was about 750,000 people. So again, very strong. And the unemployment rate fell to 5.2%, getting well into the range of what is typically considered full employment. Now, those are a lot of pressures on the Fed, of course, and again, as while the markets are certainly hoping that there won't be any taper coming anytime soon, the real risk is, is the Fed understands where they are and that they may have to start tapering these balance sheet pur purchases before the end of the year. Now, that potentially puts some pressure on markets if we begin to see a contraction of that liquidity. So there is risk to the views of S&P 5000. And of course, that is the new target. And, you know, analysts are falling all over themselves right now to try to get that target price out. <laughs> you know, in fact, you look at a lot of headlines, like, S&P 5000, we're on our way. Yes, we're going to get there. The question is, is how quick? And of course, does the market have some trouble along the way? Now, again, we're into the month of September, which typically is a, a one of the weaker months of the year. August certainly didn't turn out to be that way. August turned out to be a very good month. And of course, now we're into September. Will the market bulls be able to defy typical September weakness? Don't know. We'll see what, how that comes out and how that happens. You know, we've talked about the issue about getting your shopping started early for Christmas simply because, well, you're not going to be able to get access to a lot of things this year simply because of all the supply chains and shortages, et cetera, that we've got going on. And of course, one of the big factors behind all of this and considering that most everything that you use now in some shape, form or fashion has a semiconductor in it, the semiconductor shortages are expected to continue throughout this year and well into next year. So there was kind of some early hope that we might see a, a break in the supply shortages, but that doesn't seem to be the case right now as we continue to see backlogs. And of course, you know, we've got, you know, lots of demand for products, goods and services right now. And that now that will fade, right, as we see a lot of these stimulus payments kind of start to roll off here. And of course, that's kind of the big news, right, is that uh, as of September the 1st, and as of Labor Day in particular, 
all of those unemployment benefits, those uh, extra benefits for long-term unemployed, the uh, unemployment benefit program that was set up specifically for gig workers, and the regular $300 a week additional uh, unemployment check on top of regular unemployment benefits, that all expired in September. So those are now all gone, and everybody is now moving back to their more normal trend of unemployment income. And so the question is, is now will they all go back to work? Right. So this is the so this is the big question, right? We have these, you know, about once a month we see these job opening and labor turnover surveys that come out. So we have record job openings. Well, there's some dubious kind of calculation numbers on that. Um, you know, so they may be kind of overstating how many jobs are actually out there. And there's a lot of companies now simply because of the fact that, you know, uh, you know, putting out ads is so easy today. And it used to be back in the day <laughs> to put out a job wanted ad, you had to call up a paper. You had people like a, a newspaper. Yeah, there was this thing you used to get thrown to your house every week. It was black and white and red all over, um, as the old pun goes. <laughs> It's called a newspaper. And, you know, in that, you actually read it to get your news. Imagine that. And you would actually have to call up and talk to some person on the other end of the line and put an ad in the paper saying, I'd like to have an ad in the paper for this job. Here's the description, et cetera, so forth and so on. And you'd have to do that for however many cities that you wanted to run a job opening ad in. So if you were a national company, you had to call a lot of papers to put ads to work. Nowadays, with things like CareerBuilder and Indeed and this and that and the other thing, um, all these online job search programs, it's very easy. I just basically go online and I put in an ad and it's shown, it shows all over the country. So I can just keep these ads kind of running all the time. If I've got a job position where there's a lot of turnover, particularly in things like the restaurant business or the service business. There's a lot of turnover in those businesses, so I can just leave these job openings out there for a long time. So job openings may be overstated relative to what the actual employment demand is. But nonetheless, you know, we did see, you know, employment numbers. And over the last three months, we've seen about 750,000 people on average hired per month. Now, if the August report was a bit weak. We'll see what happens next month. But this all kind of feeds back into kind of what's going on within this kind of this, this economic environment that we're in. Is, and, and, you know, so we've got a couple of things happening here. As I said, you know, we've got the supply shortages that are coming up and remain. And semiconductors are a big component of most of your Christmas shopping, you know, from TVs to apples to iPhones to, you know, you name it, right? Pretty much everything has a semiconductor in it now. So that's going to make product harder to get. And at the same time, retailers are hoping for a strong Christmas selling season, yet the amount of money available to spend may be reduced. And again, as I was talking about a second ago, you know, you have this unemployment situation and you have the situation where all this extra money is not rolling off. And I forgot at the same time, you now have the rent moratorium back uh, repealed. So now all of a sudden there's about 750,000 people who are behind on the rent as well going into the end of the year. So again, there's, there's a few things that are kind of headed this way that could really kind of disrupt 
the end of the year as we go economically speaking. But uh, as, as we're saying, you know, the, the end of the year is fast approaching. And if you do want to try to get, you know, a laptop computer or a television or a receiver, et cetera, you might want to start thinking about ordering it sooner than later because you may not be able to get it. And there may be a lot of people with the back, 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 back order slip <laughs> for Christmas <laughs> this year. You may need to explain that to those who are watching on the yeah, World Yeah, no, Wide I was Web. just thinking about that. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a, a huge furniture company here in um, Houston called Gallery Furniture and and Mac McInvell, who has been an icon in Houston for 40 years now, maybe, at least 40 years. Um, he started out his business, this little furniture business in this warehouse. has grown to be this massive business here in Houston. Um, but he started out with these commercials where he promised same-day delivery, and you'd never be sitting on a back, 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 back order slip. And that was his punchline for years. So, And he would save you money. And he would save you money. He actually started out in a tent. He did. Along the freeway. He did. Yeah. Started in a tent. Now it's a massive furniture store. Beautiful store. Yeah. So there's lots of stories that go along behind that, but uh, <laughs> he's also the guy you've probably heard. You, if, if you if you if that if it doesn't ring a bell, um, even if you're nationally, you know, anywhere in the country listening to the show right now, you may have seen the stories where there's this crazy furniture guy who will guarantee you that if you bet on the Houston Astros or the Houston Texans to win or whatever or pick a team on the outcome of the Super Bowl you would get all of your furniture for free. So if you go buy like $3,000 worth of furniture and you pick the winner of the Super Bowl, you would get it for free. So, and every year he makes these outrageous bets and these things have been in the news for every time he does this, it, it goes out. So more often than not, he, he wins. So, <laughs> you know. And but, he's got a nice insurance policy yeah, just, just in, in case. case. Exactly, yeah, he's not out any money. So anyway, uh, just something to think about economically. Or look, we are watching the economic data slow down and, and slow down rather sharply as well. Goldman Sachs has cut their uh, end of the year economic forecast as well. The Atlanta Fed has cut theirs. The New York Fed, interestingly enough, just suspended their whole prediction. They they have a website where they do their their GDP real time tracker, kind of like the Atlanta Fed. The New York Fed said our numbers are so messed up, we're just going to cancel this for now and go reformulate. <laughs> Our, our formula because our formula is not working. So they just completely suspended their whole their whole guidance. Uh, Morgan Stanley's downgraded their economic growth. And surprisingly enough, there was this little shop here in Houston who has been telling you since the beginning of the year that GDP would come in a lot weaker than expected. I'll think of who that was. Uh, but if you go to our website, you'll find plenty of articles where we wrote that. So ever since the beginning of the year so yeah i mean it's you know this is all evident right we had all this pull forward activity and the slowdown in activity certainly not surprising here but i can't remember their name but i think the initials are ria yeah something like yeah. that yeah it's it, they're pretty fine it's pretty easy to find so <laughs> you got a real investment advice <laughs> yeah just go to realinvestmentadvice.com search them there you'll find them um but yeah so so this is really as we kind of uh, again, you know, looking at the the surrounding of the markets and the economy, the markets aren't really paying attention to any of this weaker economic data. That's because, as I was saying at the at the open today, it's all about the Fed. As long as the Fed doesn't taper, markets are fine. The reality, though, underneath the surface is, is we are starting to see some 
more important economic weakness here. And that's starting to show up in a lot of areas from employment to actual consumption and, and other areas. And we're going to see more of this. ISM indexes are slowing down. We're starting to see some you know strains in other areas of the market so, as well. And interest rates have been pretty much a very good predictor that things were going to be a little bit weaker than expected as well. So again, that's all coming in now. So what the bulls are hoping for here um, is that the economic data weakening will keep the Fed from tapering. That's the bet here. And they could very well be right. Over the next couple of months, we're going to hear more from Fed speakers. And as we start to head into the next uh, Fed meeting, which is the end of this month in September, um, we're going to get a lot more talk about you know how the Fed is really kind of positioning themselves, particularly post the weak employment report last week. So is the Fed now beginning to step back and go, well, maybe we should kind of hold off on this taper idea? That's That's really been the bet. Uh, with the bulls over the course of the last few days, and particularly uh, with the employment report on Friday, that's really kind of the bet here is that the Fed is going to kind of back off and not be as aggressive about tapering as long as we're starting to show signs of economic weakness. So now, having said that, this is where the whole idea, and this is today's article on the website talking about S&P 5000. The problem with S&P 5000 is ultimately the markets are so extended above long-term means, exponentially, uh, they're so extended above exponential growth trends. Another 500 points in the S&P really well within the margin of error here in terms of how far the market can go before it breaks. But you are in the midst of a melt-up, and that melt-up can go on for a lot longer than you expect. But this is where we are in the environment. It's something to be considerate of because, again, the deviations from long-term trends, market caps to GDPs, etc., they're so out of balance right now that the underlying economy just simply can't support prices where they're currently at. And that's really kind of the whole gist of the article today on the website, S&P 5000. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. ESG investing. I, I kind of mentioned this in the show opener this morning, topic we get to, of course. This is this idea of investing in companies that are environmentally, socially, or governance compliant. And they're working to be better companies for the world around us, et cetera, so forth and so on. And this is one of the hottest investment streaks right now, right, is these young millennials. And you even see this on commercials, on television stuff. It's like, I want to invest in, in socially conscious companies. That's great. Invest in those. You know, we go through this every few years. Um, back in the late 90s, it was all about sin stocks. We didn't want to invest in sin stocks. So alcohol, tobacco, firearms, um, those were excluded from certain funds. And so people go out and buy these socially conscious funds that were, you know, didn't have these sin stocks in them, so to speak. And it turned out that the stocks that were excluded were the best performing stocks and the funds didn't really perform all that well. 
So we go through this all the time. And, and again, as investors, we've got to really kind of set a lot of that nonsense aside and just, you know, find companies that provide a good value for the investment that you're putting into it on a, on a dollar return basis, return on investment, ironically. Um, and, you know, invest, you know, that way, right? Invest to grow our money. Don't worry about all these other things. But we go through these cycles where it's the new hot topic. Right. It's, the, it's the new thing. And what's always interesting about this is that the people that benefit is always Wall Street. The people that lose out are the people that buy the products that Wall Street produces. So BlackRock, a big purveyor, as an example, of these funds runs around. Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, runs around talking ESG all the time. It's like, oh, ESG, ESG, ESG. We've got to, we've got to be ESG compliant, blah, blah, blah. And they produce all these ESG funds for you to invest in. And we wrote an article uh, just recently on this called The Great Wall Street Money Heist. And, and the reason I bring this up is there's a fact now that the SEC is now picking up on what's going on in the ESG industry, which is simply telling you that these funds are ESG compliant. So you buy them, you pay more for them, but they're not any different than any other fund. In fact, a lot of funds simply just changed the name of their funds to ESG something or another and didn't change any of the holdings and raised the fee to more than double what the previous fund charged. Now, why wouldn't they do? I mean, look, if I can charge you more, for telling you something is ESG and you'll pay it because you you think you're buying an ESG compliant fund, great. Why not? I benefit from that. I don't care what really happens to you. You're just the sucker buying my product. So the SEC is now cracking down on dubious ESG labels tied to $35 trillion in assets. Now, it's one thing to say, ESG labels tied to a trillion dollars in assets. You say, well, let's see, that sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, in the size of the financial markets, you know, a trillion dollars isn't really all that much. So there's a few, there's a few companies that are, you know, kind of fudging the ESG thing, right? <laughs> Not a trillion, 35 trillion. That's a massive chunk of the entire market capitalization of the stock market. It's huge. $35 trillion. It's bigger than the whole U.S. economy. U.S. economy right now on a real inflation-adjusted basis is like, 22, like $20, $21 trillion. You're talking about $35 trillion. It's almost 150% of, of the economy in assets that are tied to these ESG labels. Now, one of the reasons that we, keep, we bring this up is, is, you know, you have to pay attention to what you're investing in. And just because somebody tells you something is ESG related doesn't mean that it actually is. What people are investing in is like they feel good about investing in ESG as long as the ESG fund is performing with the markets. And so how do I get an ESG? So, so Brent and I are coming out with a new ESG fund. It's called the ESG Radio fund, whatever, right? Now we've got two. We've got two mandates here, right? One is 
that we want to, we want you to buy it. In order for you to buy it, it's got to perform with the market. Okay, so how do I get an ESG fund to perform with the market? I buy the stocks that are driving the market. The most common holdings between all ESG funds are simply these. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Google, uh, Johnson Johnson, Tesla, Procter & Gamble, Home Depot, Bank of America. Now, these are the stocks that are not only commonly found in most ESG funds, but they're the ones that are also leading the market. What would be the sell? And I want you to think about this for a second. If I bought truly companies that were environmentally, socially, and government or governance conscious, and that fund did not perform with the market, would you still buy it? Are you that committed to the idea of being ESG responsible? and only invest in companies that were truly ESG compliant if it wasn't performing with the market. Of course not. You'd sell it. Here's the other problem with ESG. There's no rules for it. Nobody knows exactly what being environmentally, socially, or governance conscious means. <laughs> right? We, there's no parameters for it. You can't screen for environmental funds. As an example... Apple. Apple makes iPhones. Where is iPhones produced? They're produced in China. What goes into an iPhone? Rare earth metals. How do you get rare earth metals? Well, you have to strip mine the planet to get them. Then you pay employees two, three bucks a week to manufacture these things until the point that they jump out of windows and commit suicide from the stress. So how is that exactly ESG compliant? And we go right down the list. The problem with ESG, as I said, is there's no rules for it. There's, you know, they said, this is, this is ESG. Great. Well, what is that? What exactly does ESG mean? Can I get onto a screener and screen for stocks that meet certain parameters of ESG? No, you can't. Because we don't know what those are. Nobody's defined them. So this is the problem. But it's a great idea because I can charge you more for them. And so this is why the SEC is now cracking down on this. And again, there's been a, a huge global push in this direction. And again, it's, it's to the point of, of the benefit of Wall Street, not yours. Let me ask you another question. You want to be ESG compliant? No problem. How do you buy an ETF where the money flows into, say, BlackRock, as an example. So you buy BlackRock's ESG ETF. So the money flows into BlackRock. They've got the assets. They're charging you the fee for it. They're making money off your money. How does that have anything to do with making the environment socially better, economically better? All you're doing is charging a fee on assets. You're not doing anything to the environment. You're not creating a product. You're not, you're not changing the environment. You're not supporting a cause. You're not contributing to a charity. You're not doing any of that. You're just being charged a fee to have your assets in the financial markets, buying ethereal pieces of paper, hoping they go up in price. So the whole thing is completely ludicrous to start with, but 
again, we go through these phases, and whose benefit is it really? It's Wall Street's. And that's really even after SEC Chief Gary Gensler said the SEC wanted to push asset management firms and banks to come up with more disclosures surrounding ESG funds and investments. Bloomberg is reporting that the SEC has launched yet another investigation to try and ascertain just how much of the $35 trillion of ESG industry is stocked with dubious funds selling assets with little or nothing to qualify them as green. So, as always is the case, and, and this, is, this is really the point, you know, I have no, look, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to invest in companies that support your personal beliefs, whatever they are, right? I, you know, you don't like oil and gas? Great. You don't buy ExxonMobil. Easy. <laughs> so invest in companies that you believe in, invest in, in companies that you have values that you share with, whatever they are, right? Go invest in the actual company. Don't buy an ETF. If you don't like, uh, if you like green companies, go buy, you know, go buy Tesla stock as an example. That's fine. That way, at least you're making the choice about what you believe meets your value criteria. And again, we went through this back in the 90s. I had clients who tell me, don't buy Philip Morris. I don't believe in, in cigarettes. Okay, Philip Morris had outstanding returns and a massive dividend for years following the, um, the whole sin stock issue. So you made a value choice. That's great. It cost you money. So what's our job really? Is our job to invest in our values or is our job to invest in value and to make our money work for us? That's really the question that we should be asking. Be right back after the break. So, uh, interesting story out this morning. We're talking about the shipping problem, right? And uh, Brent put a story on my note page this morning talking about a New York City home made out of 21 shipping containers. So, there's your supply shortage, right? Can't get a container to ship stuff in it's because they're converting them into houses. Um, just sold in New York City for $5 million. Now, so somebody bought this house, $5 million. It is made out of 21 shipping containers. It's not bad looking. I mean, you know, it's got wood floors and walls and windows and all that. I mean, but it's it's constructed out of shipping containers. So construction was pretty cheap, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a high profit margin in this particular house. Um, what really made it sell for $5 million was this guy actually has a parking garage. People in New York... People, seriously, people in New York pay an astronomical amount of money for parking spaces. You know, it's to rent a parking space in New York City is costly because there's just not many of them. So <laughs> it's almost like trying to get your kids into private school yeah, over exactly. there. Well, that's anywhere. Yeah, that's private school is just ridiculous now. Um, that's why I moved to Katy. <laughs> Send them to public school. <laughs> you know. If, yeah, you know, there's there's a theory behind this, right? If you send your kids to public school and they can make it through that, they can pretty much make it anywhere. So, you know. <laughs> that's the course that's not on the syllabus. <laughs> exactly. 
you know, when, you, when you were growing up, it used to be real tough. I mean, there were like schoolyard fights and everything, right? So, I mean, kids getting punched in the nose. It was terrible. It was just horrible. Yeah. Had a, you had a dispute, you settled it behind the school in the parking lot. I mean, it's just. That was Civics 101. Yeah. Got away from that. <laughs> now it's all name calling <laughs> randomly behind anonymous screen names. Game exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right. So we're just kind of wrapping up this uh, conversation on ECF funds. Be, be careful what you invest in. Uh, really, really look into what you invest in and you, you can do better for yourself over time. And, and again, as I said, there's nothing wrong with investing in your values and doing whatever, but you can do a better job than paying Wall Street twice what they would charge for funds just because that is ESG label on it. Again, <clears throat> I did a, a, if you go to a website and you search ESG, um, you'll come up with the article that I wrote about this. And, and we put some, some, you know, details in that article talking about the correlation between these ESG funds and the S and P and you pay twice as much for an ESP, ESG fund as you do in as, as you do just investing in SPY as an example of you know just a S&P ETF you pay twice the rate for it for exactly the same performance exactly and that's because they have the same holdings in them so i'm not sure what you're accomplishing by paying twice as much except eroding your own profit margin for the benefit of wall street and this is why wall street's so gung ho on this right i mean it's a you know, in a in a world, and this is look. This is one of our biggest challenges as as registered investment advisors and managing money for our clients. You know, we work very hard all year long, and every year is pressure, downward pressure on on the fees that we can charge to manage assets. And it's not just about the asset management; it's the financial planning, estate planning. You know, it's all the other stuff that goes along with that. But every year, those fees are pressured lower and lower and lower because people want everything for free. Right. That's and look, we've got free trading now because of that. It's not free. It's not really free because you're getting scalped on the payment for order flow. But you know, it's free. Free trading. But when Wall Street can find an avenue to charge you more, they're gonna do it. And that's what they're doing with these ESG funds. I can charge you twice as much. And give you the exact same product, and you're happy because you have a Volkswagen with a Mercedes tag on it. That's all you've got. But that's that's the issue. So, just kind of wrapping up the show today. This this idea of investment, right, over time, and our job as investors. This is. You know, this is the one thing that we have to always come back and focus on. This is the one thing we tend to lose focus on more often than not. And particularly when we get into these environments where simply everything is working. I can buy crappy companies and they work. I can buy good companies and they work. I can buy mediocre companies and they work. In fact, in this environment, the worst fundamental company I can buy tends to outperform high quality companies. And that's because of the speculation and, and the mentality that we've built inside uh, uh, the market. And this is, look, this is the moral hazard that has been fostered by the Federal Reserve 
by providing what investors believe to be, and I want to I want to emphasize that believe to be part of the conversation. Because investors believe that there's an insurance policy provided by the Fed against loss. The, market, the, the Fed won't let the market fall, and it seems that way. Unfortunately, the Fed really doesn't have any control over the markets. What they do is they support the psychology of the markets in the short term. And very much like Pavlov's dogs, what they have done is they have provided a stimulus into the market environment. Investors have now been trained that when the Fed does QE, that ring, that's the ringing of the bell, and so investors go buy stocks. There is, a, there is a point to where the Fed can ring the bell and the market may not respond for one reason or the other. And there are certainly, there are certainly rising issues globally. There's a problem in China right now. It's not really getting much attention, and nobody really cares about it at the moment because it's not pandemic-related. But there's a company called Evergrande, and Evergrande was a massive conglomerate of construction-related projects of all different types. And they took on a tremendous amount of debt. And they are a, the equivalent to the Lehman Brothers story in the U.S., but a lot larger. This is about a $300 billion-plus company that is on the verge of bankruptcy. The bonds are no longer accepted as collateral. The bonds are now in default. Uh, the bonds have been, uh, have been halted from trading. Now, the question is, can the Chinese government bail out Evergrande, which they can? The problem is, and this is the Lehman problem, Lehman going bankrupt wasn't the problem for the financial markets in 2007. It was just a company going bankrupt, right? And so when a company goes bankrupt, you basically restructure the debt, the bondholders take a loss, and, you know, you get the company going back again. They've got a cleaner balance sheet. That wasn't the problem. The bankruptcy of Lehman wasn't the problem. The problem was that it froze the credit markets because all of a sudden Lehman was this integral part of the transaction system of banks and brokers firms all working with each other. They were all each taking each other's hedging risks. They were trading bonds between themselves and they were what's called a counterparty to other people's transactions. So if I wanted to execute a transaction, Lehman was on one side, I was on the other. All of a sudden, everybody stopped and said, wait a minute, if Lehman's going bankrupt, who else has got liability to Lehman? I'm not trading with anybody, and it froze the credit system in the U.S., and when you freeze the credit system, that's what blew up the markets in 2008. That's what created the financial crisis. This has the same potential risk in China because Evergrande is a counterparty to a lot of other players in the industry. And now amid this kind of liquidation panic, it is now spreading to these other 
Chinese firms that are also junk rated that have risk. Because now everybody's going, well, if Evergrande just went bankrupt, who else is next? And I don't want to trade with anybody. So the question is going to be for the Chinese government, can they bail out all of these companies at the, at the same time? We'll see what happens. But this is one of those stories. There is not a so unrelated relationship between the Shanghai indexes and the U.S. In fact, the Shanghai index in China has a kind of historical tendency to lead what happens in the U.S. And if you remember going back to 2007, when Lehman failed, it wasn't just an isolated U.S. case. It spread globally because these companies were doing, you know, Lehman was doing business with banks all over the world. There were these counterparty risks with banks all over the world in these mortgage markets. Now, this isn't mortgages. The, the question is, and this is just talking about one of those risks, and this is a story that nobody's really paying much into, and it may be nothing, right? It may turn out to be nothing at all. The Chinese government may just bail out everything. It'll be fine. The risk and the reason it's worth paying attention to is that there is a risk of contagion in default always in the credit markets. And whenever a the credit market buckles in one area, it's kind of like the butterfly effect. It has a tendency to spread. So this is a story to at least be paying attention to and watch what's happening in the credit markets because it could affect potentially the equity markets as well and keep the ECB and the Fed from tapering. So keep a watch on the story. We'll keep you updated with it as it starts to develop. Anyway, I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. S&P 5000, our latest technically speaking post is up. And our daily market commentary. You get all of that this morning right at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow.